We're in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, if you'll open your Bibles there, and we'll continue in our study through the book of Ephesians today. As you're making your way there, let me tell you a story. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine here in the church called me up, and he asked me, uh, he said, hey, Ted, buddy of mine, good friend of mine's in the hospital, he's really sick, and... Uh, and he doesn't know the Lord, would you, would you come with me to talk to, to him? I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, he, he'll get saved. And, uh, and I said, forget it, man. I'm watching the game. I'm not going to go with you and do that. No, of course, I, I went with him. And we went uh, down to, to Loma Linda, uh, and, uh, and his buddy was there. Now, his buddy, you know, fairly young guy, he was working out, and, uh, and he went into a full cardiac arrest when he was working out. His heart stopped, he stopped breathing, they had to do CPR on him, really long resuscitation, and, um, and they, they, they brought him back. And so we walk into this guy's hospital room there, and <clears throat> he's, he's conscious, and he's talking, and the whole bit, and, and, uh, and so, you know, my friend begins to, to talk to his friend and to say, hey, listen, I brought... Uh, a good, you know, a good friend of mine. He's also my pastor, and I, I just want to talk to you because, man, you came really close to death. You scared us all, and, and I'm just afraid, you know, that you don't know the Lord and and where you know you might go after you die. And and he interrupts him right in the middle of uh, of his talking to him, and he he, he says he says to him, uh, "Hey, Bobby, let me tell you something." He says, "I I died, and I went to the other side." There's nothing there. Now put yourself in my shoes. Because you have just been asked, you've just put, been put on the spot, you have been brought in. There is now somebody right in front of you. They don't know the Lord. Your job there is to tell this person about Jesus Christ, and they, from a position of authority that you've never experienced, they, they have died. They look you in the eye and they say, I've been to the other side. I died. Have you died? I died, and there's nothing there. What do you do? What do you say? Well, now you can get a little taste of the way I felt for just a, just a fraction of a second, I have to admit. You ever, been, you ever got the wind knocked out of you? You know how, how that feels? You know, okay, so there, just for a fraction of a second, man, I, I, just, I admit, man, I got the wind knocked out of me. I'm like, what on earth am I going to say to this guy? And, uh, and so, you know, just again, just praying, Lord, I need wisdom here. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit just, just opened up and just the fire hose, man, of just, just gave to me just this insight that I didn't possess in, in and of myself, but the Lord just showed me what to say to the guy. And so what I said to him was, my friend, you're mistaken. See, because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and the, the, the reason that you never saw God, the reason why it was all blackness to you was because you weren't in heaven. You didn't die. You didn't go to heaven. Your spirit, you were never absent from your body. Now, this made him angry. He, he's like, you know, who the hell are you to tell me that? And, and I said to him, listen, here's, here's what you need to understand, my friend. There are three types of death. And two of them are, are what's known as clinical death and physical death. 
And, and I happen to know a little something about this part because, man, I, I come from not only a spiritual background, but I come from a, from a medical background as well. And, and here's what you need to understand. Clinical death is when your heart stops and your breathing stops. And what you experienced is a thing called clinical death. And so, yes, your heart stopped. Yes, your breathing stopped. Yes, you became unconscious. The, those, those things go hand in hand. They are, they're, they're, uh, they're instantaneous. Your heart stops, you stop breathing, you go unconscious, and it is just that quick. I said, but the moment that you collapse and your heart stops and your breathing stops, that doesn't mean that your body is dead. All of the tissues in your body are still alive. They don't die just the second you stop breathing. They don't die just the second that your heart stops. And, and, and what happens is what defines, what makes the difference between clinical death and physical death, well, that's the description of clinical death. Physical death is when you lay there for a while and nobody does anything about it or they try to do something about it and they're unsuccessful. And so after a period of time, your cells will begin to die. And the cells that you have in your body that are the most susceptible to the lack of oxygen are your brain cells. They're the ones that die first. And after about 10 minutes of going without oxygen to your brain, your brain cells will begin to die. And you, you lay there for another 10 minutes or so. You lay there pulseless, non-breathing for 20 minutes. Well, you're going to be brain dead. And a little while after that, as the rest of your tissues and your rest of your cells in your body begin to go without oxygen, slowly, one by one, they will start to die. And so over a period of time, you will move from clinical death to physical death. My friend, you never ever experienced physical death, and the proof of that is that you're awake, laying in your hospital bed, and you're talking to me, to me right now. So you never died, and your spirit never left your body. He said, go to hell. He wanted to know nothing about me. He, if he could have gotten out of that bed, he would have, he would have wanted to, to hurt me. He did want to hurt me. He was, he was really upset with me. I said, listen, what you need to understand is that you never died, your spirit never left your body, but there are three types of death. There's clinical death, there's physical death, and my friend, there's spiritual death. And what you need to understand right now is that you're spiritually dead. And the same urgency that that, 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 that fire department uh, personnel exerted when you were collapsed there on the gym floor, that same urgency right now exists spiritually because the clock is ticking for you. You're spiritually dead. This is why you're so upset with me right now when I'm talking to you about the things of the kingdom, when I'm talking to you about Jesus Christ, because you're spiritually dead. And the Bible says that the, the things of the Spirit are foolishness to, to, to those who, who don't have the Spirit of God. And, and so right now, this seems like foolishness to you, but you need to understand you were clinically dead. You're not cl clinically dead anymore. You've never been physically dead, but you are spiritually dead, and you have a problem. And the only cure for your problem is Jesus Christ and the clock is ticking. Now Jesus said a very similar thing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He explained to him that man is spiritually dead, that he must be born again. And that's the idea that Paul is conveying here in Ephesians chapter 2. Read it with me. Ephesians 2 verse 1, here's what he says. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You ever take a group photo? 
Who's the first person you look for? You, right? Paul says, let me give you a snapshot. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, you'll recall, Paul, he ended Ephesians 1 with a prayer. And the prayer that he prayed was that the Ephesians would know the greatness of God's power that raised Jesus from the dead. And now here in in Ephesians 2, Paul considers the implications of Jesus' resurrection power in our lives. And what he's saying is that the same resurrection, the same resurrection power, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has raised these Ephesians from the dead. You here today, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you have have believed that in your your heart, if you've confessed that with your mouth, that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says that you were saved. And as we're going to see today, we are saved by grace, through faith, that not of yourselves, it's not about works, it's a gift from God, lest anybody should boast. And so Paul here, he's, he's considering these implications of Jesus' resurrection power in our life. And our first point, Paul's first, first point of the, the text, our first point today, is that Jesus' resurrection power delivers us from death. We're going to dial into that, and you can write that down. Jesus' resurrection power delivers us from death. Listen, if you have the King James Version Bible or the New King James Version Bible, you will note there in in the the first verse of chapter 2 that when Paul says, uh, you he made alive, uh, it's written in italics there. Uh, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. The reason that's written in italics is because that he made alive is not in the original text. It's implied by the text. That's why they've placed it here in the New King James uh, translation or the King James translation as well. Um, but, but it's not part of the original translation. It's simply implied from the text. And, he, and here's where the implication comes from. If you just skip down to verse 4 and 5, Paul says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses of sin, uh, I'm sorry, dead in trespasses, here it is, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And and, and so here he made alive, it's in italics, again indicating that the phrase wasn't a part of the original text, but is rather implied. And what the emphasis here is, it's on the hopeless condition that these Ephesians were in. They were dead without hope until they were made alive by God. They were dead without hope until they were made alive by God. In the summer of 1989, there was a, a, a batch of black tar heroin that was being sold on the streets uh, in the city of Paris. And uh, people were overdosing on this left and right. The reason for that is because black tar heroin is very potent. It's a very powerful form of heroin. And so you had all the, the heroin addicts there in the city who were shooting up. Uh, they, they were overdosing. Now, the, the consequence of, of heroin, when you take too much of it, is you stop breathing, which is inconvenient uh, for a heroin addict because they're shooting up in secrecy and so on. And so what would happen is people would discover them unconscious, unresponsive, uh, and in, you know, certainly not breathing, uh, and, uh, and for, for some, if they laid there long enough, they're in full cardiac arrest. So um, the day that this batch hit the ground, we were very busy. Uh, as paramedics, we were going from one call to another call to another call, overdose, 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 overdose. Well, we carry in our drug boxes, as paramedics, we carry a drug called Narcan. 
And the beauty of Narcan is it, it reverses the effects uh, of narcotics, the, 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 the one uh, bad effect being respiratory arrest. So uh, stopping the person stop breathing, we would give Narcan uh, and it would reverse the effects of the narcotics and the person would start breathing again. Really, it was a drug that made you look like a miracle worker. As a matter of fact, we went to this, this one house and it, it, probably fourth, fifth overdose of the day, no exaggeration. And so we get there and it's this kid. I mean, seriously, he must have been 15, 16 years old. He's a Hispanic kid in a Hispanic neighborhood and his family is there. All of his family is there. There's 15, 20 people in the yard and they are losing their minds because this kid is not breathing. And so they're freaking out and the engine crew beat us in and they're, you know, busy breathing for this guy with an ambu bag and, and they come and they, gra- they physically grab my partner by the lapels and, and the, the engineer scared himself now. He says, he's not breathing, man. Well, my partner at this point, he's, he's this, you know, five foot five, you know, just full of attitude kind of guy. He's like, hey, 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 I'm here now. It's okay. <laughs> So, just, just a matter, I mean, it's our fourth or fifth overdose of the day. So, we, we, we start the IV, and, uh, and, you know, I drop the Narcan, I hand it to him, and he slams the Narcan in, and he walks around to the guy's forehead with a big show. He places his hand on the guy's forehead, and he says, rise and be healed. And the Narcan kicks in, and the guy starts going, oh, he starts coming around. The family's going, it's a miracle! It's a miracle! They're all jumping around. The guy comes back. Now, the reason that kid lived is because someone outside of himself made him alive. See, had nobody shown up to help him, he'd be dead. He'd be dead. For all I know, he may be dead yet. I mean, he, he, you know, we gave him the Narcan. That didn't stop him from being a heroin addict. I don't know if maybe since then he's overdosed and he's, he's died. But in that moment, the reason he lived was because somebody outside of himself made him alive. And that's what Paul says here in Ephesians 2. Look, Jesus, likewise, he made us alive when we were dead. And the point is, all of us at one time, We're spiritually dead. That's the implication. And I want you to notice what Paul says next in verse 2. He says, you he made alive, verse 1, who were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Now, what Paul here is doing is he's really describing a zombie of sorts, right? Zombie movies and TV shows, they're real popular right now. And, uh, and there's, there's one, uh, a movie, I saw the, the, the trailer for it, it's called Warm Bodies. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but it's all about this, this dead guy walking around and, and how, you know, you, you can't, I guess, immediately tell who's living, who's dead. Paul's basically saying, we got a lot of zombies among us. People walking around, but they're spiritually dead. And, and, and so, the, the, in fact, Paul, he writes to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy. 
And he's trying to tell this, this young pastor how he should pastor his church and the things that he needs to do. And one of the things that he says to him, I'll put the scripture on the screen for you, 1 Timothy 5, 6. He says, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. He's talking about, you know, those that are, are living for themselves. He's describing a person that's entirely caught up in the physical, could care less about the spiritual. And what he says of this woman, he says, she's living in pleasure, she's living for herself, she's living for her flesh and the world and all the stuff that's passing away. She could care less about the things of the Spirit. And he says, she's dead even while she lives. And, and when he says that, she who lives in pleasure, that, that, that whole phrase, it's one word in the Greek. And, and basically what it means, the idea of it, is that the entire focus is on the physical and not having any care at all for the spiritual. And here's what Paul says that looks like now in, in verses two and three. He says, this is, this is the way you looked when you were a walking zombie. You guys, you talking to the Ephesians, hey, before you gave your life to Christ, me talking to you, Reliance Church, if you've received Jesus Christ, here's what your life used to look like. He says, in which, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, there's three forces at work here that Paul describes. There's three forces working here. The, the, there's the course of the world, there's the prince of the power of the air, and there's the lusts of the flesh. Now, there in verse 2, he talks about the course of this world. And, and, and the idea there, it's, it's like a river current. That's, that's the idea. He's saying, Paul's saying, there is a course to this world. There is, a, there is a flow to the world in which you and I live in. This world follows a very definite current. And, and we see, and you can notice, the, the current of the world in a, in a lot of different ways, a lot of different mediums, a lot of different indicators where you can get a sense of, you know, sort of which way the, the wind is blowing, which way the current is going in this world. You, you see it in advertising, you see it in social media trends, uh, you see it in education, you see it in arts and entertainment, right? You get a sense for what the course of this world is that, that you and I live in. And, and here's the thing about the course of the world. It seems very normal because it's what the majority is doing, right? But they're headed for destruction. And so, what, so much of what seems normal in this world is really just the course of the world, people running headlong to hell. Jesus said there's a narrow road that leads to eternal life, and very few find it, but there's a broad road that leads to destruction. And man, that's the party that so much of the world is on. There is a very distinct course that this world follows. And Paul says, listen, you once walked that course. The idea when he says you once walked, it's, it's really in the Greek, it's, it's, it's talking about wandering or meandering. That's the, that's the idea when he says you once walked in this course. You, you sort of wandered in this way. You meandered in this way. In other words, it, 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 the course of this world doesn't follow a straight path. That's the idea. It doesn't follow a straight path. 
If you've ever seen a river rafting or gone river rafting, it's not, it doesn't interest me. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not too uh, excited about river rafting. Uh, I've heard all kinds of stories from several different friends. They've gone river rafting, and, and uh, all of my friends wound up in the water. Now, I don't know if that's whatever, but they, and you just sort of go down, and they've got all these eddies and these currents, and, you know, this stuff can kill you, man. And the, 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 the course of the river, can, can, it can drag people under. It can hold them under. Uh, one guy tells this horror story. It was a, it, the, in this formation, it, it was kind of the equivalent of, a, of what they call a low-head dam, which somebody once described, a low-head dam, is a, it's, a, it's when there's a dam that's about that big and the water only falls about one or two feet. And what happens is when the water falls down, it creates this current at the base of it. And somebody once described, hey, if an engineer was looking to build the most efficient drowning mechanism possible, he would construct a low-head dam. And so, you know, in the course of the river, there are these things where the eddies and the currents go and, the, and you get caught underneath that Man, it, you ain't coming out. It just holds you there and holds you there and holds you there. And so what Paul is saying, look, you, you used to walk in the course of this world where you get caught up in those currents. You get caught up in those eddies. And, and so now you're not following a straight path. And he says, listen, we're all born in that river and we're all headed downstream. We're all headed to destruction. But then again, there's those that come to know God and what do you experience when you come to know God? Well, man, you're a trout. You're a salmon. You're now trying to swim upstream. You're trying to fight against the flow. And you know what that is, right? That's the hardest thing you've ever tried to do, going against the flow. I mean, seriously, think about this. Haven't you felt that way? You know, the, the, the whole world, it stands up and applauds, you know, the, the, the woman's right to choose. And we have, in, in America, 50 million-plus babies that have been murdered in, in abortion. And the whole world champions and shouts and, and praises. And the minute you try to stand up and say, listen, that's, that's a, that's, you want to call it a right to choose? It's a right to choose murder. That's what it is. And the same world that will applaud that and that course of that, that river, that course of that world you know, path, those same people, man, they will vilify you as, as, a, as a hater of women. You, you hate women. No, no, as a matter of fact, over 50% of the abortions are women. I love women. I also love, love the, the, the little boys as well, man. We need, to, we, we need to not do this. The minute, and that's just one example. I mean, you try to take a stand for Jesus Christ, and you're going to find out what it is to, to come against this current that the world is, is living in. There is a very distinct course of this world. And Paul says, listen, the spiritually dead person walks according to the course of this current. Now, another force at work that he talks about that perpetuates this spiritual death is the prince of the power of the air. Pastor Tage talked about this uh, last week. See, because the Bible says that when Satan fell, one-third of the angels in heaven fell with him. And so when, when Paul talks about the prince of the power of the air, he's speaking of the spiritual realm. And, and he's talking about the, the, the work of Satan and the, the, this one-third of, of, of fallen angels, this demonic realm that's, that's operating. This is, again, one of these forces at work uh, in, in this death and in, in this destruction. 
Again, Ephesians 6.12, where we're going to be going in, in several weeks. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And, and he says, this is the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. You see that word in verse 2, works? This is the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. You might, you might want to circle that word works. Nearby, you could write this. You could write the word energizes because that's what that word means. And the idea here is that Paul says we're, the spiritually dead person is led and energized by the prince of the power of the air. Led and energized by satanic forces. That's what that means. And so you have the course of this world that is perpetuating this lifestyle of death. You have the prince, the power of the air, the demonic realm, that's perpetuating this lifestyle of death. And thirdly, he talks about the lusts of our flesh. This includes the desires of the flesh, the desires of the mind. It, 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 it talks about your, it's your thoughts, your feelings, your desires, your fleshly appetites. That's all of these things that are conspiring to, to lead you down this path of death and destruction. The psalmist said this, The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile. Jesus said, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a man. Now, Here's the thing. So you've got this unholy trinity, this unholy trinity of forces. You've got the, the, the course of the world. You've got the, the prince of the power of the air. You've got the demonic realm. You've got your, your fallen flesh. All of them conspiring together to lead you in a lifestyle of death and in destruction. And what I want you to notice, Paul says, concerning these forces that we once walked according to them. Do you see that? That according to, again, you might want to circle that phrase, according to and nearby, you could write suppressed, overridden, or dominated. Suppressed, overridden, or dominated. That's literally what that means. Now, now here, here's the irony. The person that you will encounter that is not living in, in the spirit and not living as a new creature in Christ, a new creation in Christ, what they will tell you is that they are free that they're operating in the freedom to do whatever it is they want to do. But really, what Paul says, no, they're not operating in freedom. They're operating according to, right? According to what? Well, according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. According to the lusts of our flesh. See, the idea is, man... The sinner thinks he's free, but he's really suppressed. He's really dominated. He's really enslaved by sin. Let me ask you, are you? Are you? Are, are you living in, in a way that is really suppressed, dominated, and enslaved by sin? I really want you to take a walk with, hey, you know, you can say whatever you want. The talk is cheap. But, but what does your lifestyle say? about your faith. Are you living according to these, to these things or, or, or not? Are you in, enslaved to these things or not? 
See, and what Paul says here is, look, you were made alive. You were dead in trespasses and sin. Now, the word sin, if you've been in church for any length of time, you're aware, it means to miss the mark. And this includes the, our thoughts, it includes our words, it includes our actions, it includes our motives. And, and the idea is that you miss the mark of God's desire. That, and God's desire is that we should be perfect. And, and the, the issue is, well, sin misses that mark. And of course, the Bible's very clear. It says in Ecclesiastes 7.20 that not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Again, in Romans 3.23 says the same thing. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you do a Greek study on that word all, do you know what you find it means? All. All means all. That's all all means. Right? All have sinned. Now, what this, what this is, man, well, it means we've missed the mark of God's perfection. Sin includes those things that we commit and those things that we don't do that we should. So there are sins of commissions, the things that I do that I shouldn't do, and there's sins of omission, the things that I don't do that I should do. You know, and, and, and I don't need to, to outline that. I don't need to explain that. You know good and well. There's things that you should do that you ain't doing. And I just leave that to the Holy Spirit. He can make application right now. Hey, go, go get them, God, and convict you of the things that, you, that you're not doing that you ought to be doing. That's a sin of omission. And, and we're all readily aware of the sins that we're doing, that we commit, that we, I did that and I shouldn't have done that said this, I did that, I thought this. Those are sins of commission. And, and so the issue here is that when we sin against God, well, the result is death. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Paul also talks about another dynamic. He talks about trespasses. Now, a trespass, that's when you cross a boundary that you have been for, forbidden to go across, Okay? And there are all kinds of boundaries in this world. I remember as a, as a kid, I, I collected insulators. They're the, the things that go, are on top of telephone poles, and they're, they're really old ones. There's glass ones back from the 1800s, and they're actually worth a lot of money. And I, I was reading an off-road magazine one time, and a guy was talking about how, you know, he off-roading, and he would go out and collect insulators. I, I just became obsessed with them. I wanted to find insulators. Well, my dad decided, you know, being a good dad, hey, I'll take my kid out off-roading, and we'll go looking for insulators. And it was great, man. We had the greatest day, and we're finding all these insulators. Until a guy showed up from the railroad and called the cops, and they arrested my father for trespassing. We were on railroad property, and they arrested him. Now, thankfully, they, they dropped the charges, and my dad doesn't have anything on his record and, you know, and all of that, but, you know, he... I mean, I, my whole life, I've never been arrested. I've never been in jail. You know, there's probably several things that I should have been arrested for back in my before Christ days. Thank God I've never had to experience that. The only time I've ever been to jail is going in to treat somebody, some patient in there that, you know, they'd always, they'd fake, you know, they'd get arrested and they'd fake an illness. They can get out of jail. Nobody wants to be in jail, you know. And we used to find these guys, they'd fake a seizure. We'd call it, you know, Oscar syndrome because they're working on the Academy Award trying to, you know... I remember one guy, he's like shaking. It's like, you're faking. I went up to him, I'm like, are you having a seizure? He's like, yeah, man. <laughs> Faker. <clears throat> but, you know, my dad trespassed. He crossed a boundary he wasn't supposed to cross, and he got arrested. And man, you know, 
Life's filled with laws and boundary markers that God has established. When we cross one, we've trespassed, we've crossed a line, we're in a place that we're not supposed to be, we're doing what we ought not to do, and there's a consequence for that. And again, let me ask you this morning, where have you trespassed? Where are your sins? See, and and what I really want you to contemplate this morning is who and what are you trusting in to atone for your trespasses, to atone for your sins? See, and, and, and I would just say this, and this is important for me to say this at this point, that there's a difference between struggling against sin and being dominated and enslaved by sin. Okay? I want you to hear that. There's a difference between struggling against sin and, and being dominated and enslaved by sin. And my question for you this morning is where, where are you sitting? Are you, are you dominated and enslaved by sin today, or are you struggling against sin? See, because what Paul says there in verse 3, he says that this is what you once walked in. The implication is, when he says you once walked in this way, the implication is that it should be different. The implication is to these Ephesians, you once walked this way, but, but it should be different now. You shouldn't be walking that way now. Because you've been made alive in Christ. And and you see, before Jesus makes us alive, we're dead, right? Before he makes us alive, we're dead. And what you have, and I'll use this as an illustration, if you've got a dead guy in a coffin, he's comfortable there. I'll just say it that way. You don't see a corpse in a coffin fighting to get out, do you? You don't see, but what would happen if the person in the coffin, wasn't dead, would there be a fight? Would there be a struggle? Yes or no? Yeah, there would. How many of you would just completely lose it and freak out, right? There's there's actually a movie scene that illustrates my point perfectly. Maybe you've seen the movie Double Jeopardy, right? And in this movie Double Jeopardy, you've got this Ashley Judd. She plays the main character, and and the character's name is Libby. And, And she's married to this guy named Nick, who's played by Bruce Greenwood. And so what happens is Bruce Greenwood fakes his death. He frames his wife for the murder because he wants to to shack up with this other gal and he wants to keep their kid. And so he's effective. She gets tossed in jail. And then through, you know, this course of events, she discovers that he set her up, that he's still alive. She She breaks out of jail. She goes looking for him. She finds him, meets up with him in a New Orleans cemetery. And there in the cemetery, she's like, look, I'll let you go, whatever, just give me my kid. Okay, fine, this is going to happen. Well, then the guy, you know, he, he tries to kill her, he knocks her unconscious, and the next scene is she wakes up in a coffin, freaking out. And so, you know, breaks her way out of the coffin. And, and so the issue here is, man, there's a difference between, hey, I'm struggling against sin or I'm being dominated and enslaved by sin. I'm either dead in the coffin and then spiritually dead, there's nothing there, or I'm alive and I'm fighting and I'm, and I'm trying to get out. And my question again is, which describes you? Which one are you? Are you comfortable in the coffin of spiritual death? That's, that's my question for you. And see, what, what, what Paul's saying to the Ephesians here, he says, look, you're dead in your trespasses and sins until God rescued you. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. He's saying, hey, this was your condition before you got saved. And now, but God shows up. 
He's, got, he's rich in mercy. He has great love that he loves you. And even, verse 5, when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. The point being, you can't do nothing about it. He did it. You can't be good enough. He did it. Verse 6, and he raised us up together and made us <clears throat> sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, this is the requirement for being saved. You must first be dead, dead to every attempt to justify yourself before God. You have to be completely dead. You have to recognize your barrenness, your deadness, your utter inability, incapacity to do anything to, to, to save yourself. Jesus said, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has passed from death to life. See, a lot of times, you ever, as a kid, I watched lots of cartoons. And Bugs Bunny was one of my favorite cartoons. And there's this, there's this episode from Bugs Bunny where he's in this top hat and he grabs his, his own collar and he lifts himself out of the, out of the hat, right? And so there's, there's Bugs, you know, he's holding himself up in the air as he lifts himself up out of the hat. Ridiculous, right? Defies the laws of physics. Well, a lot of people <clears throat> in their approach to God, in their approach to life, you know, they, they might get a sense of, you know, the consequences of being spiritually dead, but they haven't come to the place where they recognize the only cure for spiritual death is just to admit, I'm dead and I need someone to resuscitate me. I need someone to rescue me. Rather than, than, than coming to that place, they suffer the consequences that they're in. And like Bugs Bunny, they think, well, I could just lift myself up out of this situation. It's foolishness. One, one, the example defies the laws of physics. And the example in the spiritual realm, it just denies the spiritual laws. You can't, you can't save yourself. See, and this is the two basic views of salvation. The two basic views that we, that we deal with in, in, in this world is, man, you either earn it or you receive it as a gift. All of the religions in the world, are, are, they're all wrapped up in one of those two mindsets, in one of those two philosophies. Every belief system outside of Christianity basically says you can earn your salvation. You earn it through things like good works. You earn it through things like repetitive prayer. You earn it through things like atoning sacrifice. Some people, their belief system is, well, you know what, I'm not Charles Manson, so, you know, just dying is going to save me. You know, oh, he, he died, but, you know, he's a good person, so he, he went to a better place. It doesn't work like that. There's an example in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 7, and for time's sake, I won't have you turn there, but <clears throat> in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is coming into the town of Nain, and there's a funeral procession coming out. A lot of people in this funeral procession, and there's this, this, this widow. She's, she, her only son is dead, and he's in the coffin. They're taking him to bury him. And Jesus goes up, and he places his hand there on the coffin. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the guy there, he gets saved. Now, let me ask you the question. What could that guy do for himself? Nothing. Not a dang thing. He was going 
to be buried. He was in his coffin. And Jesus raised him from the dead. God's the only one who can save us. And the only standard that we are measured by is Jesus Christ. God is not going to measure you by your good works. He's not going to say, well, you weren't, you weren't uh, you know, Charles Manson, so okay. I guess on, you know, the sliding scale, you know, you weren't a, you weren't a, uh, you know. And what an example to live your life. Because you, because you're not a, a, you know, a mass murderer. You're, you're somehow worthy of heaven. You know, it just, it, it doesn't work that way. Do you know who you're measured against, right? You're measured against Jesus. You're measured against God's standard himself. That's what you're measured against. So, so when you go and you stand before God, the only question is, <clears throat> were you perfect? No. Okay, so then, then, then what what'd you do with Jesus? That's it. Were you perfect? No. All right. So what did you do for the perfect sacrifice? What did you do, for the perf- do with the perfect atonement? What did you do with him? Did you receive him or did you reject him? That's the only question on the entr- entrance exam to heaven. That's it. That's it. Now, <clears throat> at this point, I want to say two things. First of all, <clears throat> I want to ask you the question today, what are you trusting in for your atonement? What are you trusting in for your eternal life, for your salvation? See, because the Bible says it's appointed to a man once to die and then to face judgment. And you know, ain't no one getting out of here alive. One out of every one person dies. So, so at the end of your life, we know none of us know how long that'll be. At the end of your life, you're going to stand before a holy, righteous God who is going to judge sin. And what are you going to say to him when you go and stand before him? Do you know today whether or not if you drop dead today, if you get hit by a bus on your way home from church today, you kick the bucket, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? If you don't, the one thing I would say is you need Jesus Christ and I'm going to give you an opportunity today at the end of the message to surrender your life to him. You say, I'm not good enough. We've well established that you ain't. Okay? You aren't. Jesus is, and he loves you. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the first thing I want to say today. If you're here today, and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, settle it today. I'm going to give you an invitation to receive Christ, and I pray you do. He promises that he will come in, that he'll take you just as you are, that he will make you a new creation. He will do the change in you that you're powerless to do. Don't be like Bugs Bunny trying to pull yourself out of the hat. It ain't going to happen. <clears throat> God has come to do that work. That's the first thing I'd say. Here's the second thing I would say, and this is important, because I'm well aware that the majority of you here are probably in a place where you're saying, come on, Ted. Christianity 101, I get it. You're preaching the gospel, I'm here. Give me something, you know, that I, that I can take home with me, you know, because you know, you're talking about, you know, salvation. I'm saved. Thank you, Jesus, I'm saved. But <clears throat> come on, I, I need a message about salvation. Come on, what do you got for me? Here's what I got for you. Who's the last person you told this to? Who's the last person that you shared this message that we're talking about today. See, because this is what it's all about. People are going to hell. 
And, and the number one reason why people say they don't share their faith, do you know what it is? You say, well, they're afraid. Yeah, what are they afraid of? They're afraid that they're not going to know what to say to the person. Did you know that? That's the number one people, when, we, when Christians are asked, why don't you share your faith? They say, because I'm afraid they're going to ask me something that I don't know. Well, listen, I just told you what you're supposed to tell them. That's why this message is so important. That's why we're going over this. Because if you are saved, you need to celebrate and live like it. We need to worship the Lord. Sometimes, I, I just got to tell you, sometimes when we sit and we, and we worship the Lord, and I, I experienced this myself. This last week, I went to a pastor's conference in Florida. And, and I admit that when I come into a new worship setting, I don't want to feel manipulated by the guys up on the, on the platform leading worship. And a lot of times I come in with a chip on my shoulder and I'm kind of like this where worship is concerned. I'm like, don't you dare manipulate me, man. Don't do some kind of, you know, sort of fake sort of thing here. And I want to know, is this real? Is this not? And I find myself through the first couple of songs not entering into worship because I'm all gripped on, are these guys really entering into worship themselves? Are they just, are they just playing? Are they just putting on some sort of an act up here? You know, and, and so I got to know, is, it, is this legit? Do you really mean it? Or are you just putting on a show for me? And a lot of times that's the way we come to church, isn't it? We come to church with this sort of all the wrong things, focusing on having all the wrong attitude. Hey, you just put on a show for me here. Is this stuff really real? Or whatever, and, and what I'm saying for us, guys, is that if, if, if we are saved, if Jesus is our Lord, then when we come to church, we need to worship him freely and adoringly and abundantly because he's worthy of it, because he's saved us, and because, because he's good. And so, so, you know, in my confession, the Lord busted me there going, knock it off and worship me. Who cares whether they're legit or not? Who cares if they're really worshiping or putting on a show? Are you going to worship me or not? Wow, Lord, okay. And so for us, man, we, we need to go, man, I, I need to enter in. I need to worship. I need to, to love him in this way. And listen, I got to be that person that says, I've been the recipient of these amazing this amazing salvation, this amazing gift, man, I need to share this with other people. Listen, it leads right in to Paul's next point. So not only does Jesus' resurrection power deliver us from death, listen, Jesus' resurrection power is deployed through us to lead others from death. Let me say that again. Jesus' resurrection power is deployed through us to lead others from death. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, verse 9, lest anyone should boast, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, we are saved by his grace and for his works. We're saved by his grace for his works. Jesus said this to, to his disciples in John's gospel. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you <clears throat> that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And he said this in Matthew's gospel. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, that's the last thing he said. 
That is the great commission. That's the last commandment that we have been given by our commander-in-chief. The Bible says that, that we are to be living our lives as Christian soldiers. Paul actually used that description to Timothy to talk about, hey, look, you know, there's a hardworking farmer. He has to be first to partake of the, the crops. And he talks about how, how the, the, the soldier doesn't concern himself with civilian affairs, that he may please the one who enlisted him as, an, as a soldier. Listen, if you're saved, God has enlisted you as a soldier, and you have been given a mandate that you need to share your faith with the people that are going to hell. You need to care enough about the people that are going to hell as God the Father cared enough to send his son to save you from going to hell. And if you're not sharing your faith, I just want to tell you, in all the love that I can, that you're grieving the heart of your Father who came to save you. And we, we have that mandate as Christians, man, i got to share my faith. Now, I told you the number one reason that we don't share our faith is because we're afraid that we don't know enough. We're afraid that I don't know what to say. And that's true, but let me tell you another dynamic, and I want to close on this point. The other dynamic is a lot of times what happens is we forget who we used to be. We, we, we get saved and we become judgmental and we forget the person that we used to be. I heard a very startling statistic this week. Do you know that within four years of being saved, the majority of Christians no longer have relationship with anybody outside of the church? Within four years of getting saved, everybody in your circle of influence, everybody in your relational connections... They're all believers. Now, you, you say, well, yeah, the Bible says bad company corrupts good character. You say, hey, you know, <clears throat> the Bible exhorts us, come out from among them and be separate. And you get no argument from me on either of those. Absolutely, you have to do it. But listen, we're also called to love the unlovely. We're called to lead sinners to Jesus. How do you do that? Well, look at verses 11 through 13. Here's what Paul says, and we'll make this quick. Therefore, remember that you, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, because you were once dead, because God's made you alive, because he's, he's, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Because he doesn't just save you for heaven, otherwise he'd save you in a way you'd go to heaven. No, he saves you, and then he enlists you for his purpose, his purpose Tied up in his great, his, his great commission, the last direction that he gave to us, go make disciples. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called un, uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the, the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ... Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers... From the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I want to read that to you in a paraphrased version, New Living Translation. Put it on the screen for you. Here's what Paul says. He says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises that God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have brought, been brought near to him through the blood 
of Christ. Listen, let me ask you the question. Do you remember the person that you used to be before Jesus got a hold of your heart? You remember who you used to be? I'll tell you, I remember who I used to be. I remember waking up in the hospital with broken bones and internal bleeding. And and then, you know, to, to discover to my horror as I wake up and I'm like, how did I get here? What happened? Oh, you got so drunk last night that you drove your Jeep and you, and you had all your buddies in it and you flipped it because you, because you, you decided you were going to drink a case of beer all by yourself and drive your car, you idiot. And, you, and you, put, you put several of you guys in the hospital. And your best friend, yeah, he got all kinds of stitches and stuff in his head. He's out of the ER. He's okay. But now you got internal bleeding and, and you know, they, they, they had to, you know, you've, you've broken, you know, your clavicle and all and, and your car's destroyed. Oh, yeah, and guess what? You're in the hospital where you work. They brought you into ER last night, drunk as a skunk, and you're cussing out the doctors and all the staff, all the people, Ted, you work with. And I think back about, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of shameful memories about things that I did in a drunken stupor. Do you remember who you used to be before Christ got a hold of you? Do you remember the piece of work that you were? Do you remember the shameful things that, that you did? Shame, I, I came to church one time drunk. That was my, that's my testimony. I'm like, my parents are like, hey, let's go to the, you know, I grew up in the Catholic church. Let's go to, to you know, to Christmas Eve service. I went to church drunk. I mean, shameful stuff in my past before I came to know Jesus Christ. And we all have those shameful stories. And I am so glad, here's the point, I'm so glad that someone loved me enough to reach out to me and to share the gospel with me. One of our deacons in testing posted this the other day, and I stole it from him, I'm going to close on this quote. By tomorrow, today's actions will be part of the past, yet they will already have, become, have begun to shape the future. By tomorrow, today's actions are going to be part of the past. They're going to already have begun to shape the future. So I would just close with this. Your actions today, as a believer, if you are a believer, your actions today can shape the future of someone else. Remember that guy I told you about that I went to share the gospel with? An opening story, a friend of mine. You know, hey, come talk to my buddy. I'd love to be able to tell you that, that I led him to Christ that day. I didn't. He pretty much cussed me out and threw me out of his, of his hospital room. <laughs> that's, the, that's the end of that story. I should say that's the end of that day. The end of the story, he's since come to know the Lord. See, you're sharing your faith. You don't have to close the deal. You just have to be faithful to share the good news. You have to be faithful to, to share the, 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 the salvation that you have with those that God would put in your path. And so my exhortation to you today, man, if you don't know him, surrender to him because you're spiritually dead and the clock is ticking. If you do know him, people are going to hell and God's called you to lead them to know him.